Welcome to the Sober Nation FM podcast, where we're putting recovery on the map. I'm your host, Jonathan Sylvester. This show is brought to you by Sobriety Engine. Do you want to take your recovery to the next level? Do you want more support, community, and fellowship? Sobriety Engine is an incredible community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery. You can get a ton of great tips, resources, and guidance to help you succeed in recovery and in life. Visit sobrietyengine.com to join today. Sober Nation FM is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle all while supporting your sobriety, then you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at rcvrhealth.com. And whether you're listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or watching on YouTube, please share this with your friends, follow, subscribe, and leave a review. Nation, let's hop right into today's episode. Today, I'll be speaking with novelist and screenwriter Jardine LeBaire. Thanks for coming on the show, Jardine. Thanks so much for having me. So I want to hear all about your work, especially your new book, Sober Lush. Uh, But first, would you mind telling us a little bit about how you found recovery? Like, What did life look like before you actually got sober? So I have a funny early story in that I was pretty much sober until I was 18, which in this country is kind of rare. I think at this point around the world is fairly rare, but Mm -hmm. um, I was kind of scared of it, which says a lot. I think instinctively I knew something Hmm. um, and kind of stayed away. I thought like beer was disgusting when I tried it. I couldn't understand what the whole, you know, big deal was about it. And I just lived in an environment. I went away to a boarding school that was super strict and it just wasn't an option. The good part of that was that I developed a lot of things like an obsession with writing, really good friendships, um, realizing I could be part of this really misfit little group of people that I adored and that that was not just enough, it was abundant. Um, So when I turned 18 and found drugs and alcohol in college and sort of got over my fear of them and realized how for a kind of shy and self-conscious person like myself, mm-hmm. they could be the ticket to social life. Sure. Um, I managed to forget how I had had enough, how I'd had a plentiful life as wow. a teenager. Wow. Um, and to me, that has been probably the through line for the next 20 years, I was just a heavy party person. I, that's what, that's the way I phrased it to myself. Like, just um, partying. I'm just partying. Yeah, I just like just parties. Yeah. I am a party monster. Um, but it was heavy drinking and drugs. I usually cut it off, you know, the next morning. Like okay. I was a 10 a.m.er. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'd usually go home by, 8 a.m., 10 a.m., and then that's how I declared myself not an addict because I told myself if I was, I would keep going through the day. Interesting, um, yeah. It's It's been a, a very interesting conversation for me to have with a lot of people, like how we learn to define partying versus addiction and how it kept us um, comfortable, at least sure. on the outside with what we were doing. But I probably knew in my late 20s that something was really off. Um, I had really vicious anxiety from hangovers. I managed to keep jobs. I managed to make deadlines, but I 
I knew I wasn't growing enough or taking advantage of opportunities. And, okay. um, and were you professionally writing during all this? I sold my first book when I was 29, my first awesome. novel. Um, awesome. I worked a lot of odd jobs and wrote it at night and on the weekends. And I managed to do that all, all while being kind of uh, reckless. But I wonder now what I could have done if I, if I hadn't been doing what I was doing. Mm -hmm. But yes, I was working professionally then. Um, so I started kind of experimenting with sobriety very furtively and secretively. I would do like 30 days okay. um, here and there, but I never reached out to the right people. I never was comfortable talking about it. I would secretly look at things um, from the library because back then there was not this bounty of resources that there is now, mm -hmm. like this podcast. Um, I read... Pete Hamill's A Drinking Life. That was like the closest thing to quit lit I could find. And um, it took until I was 40 to, to get a good therapist, do an intensive outpatient. And that was my bridge to finding a recovery community and, and um, moving forward. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, it, and it always amazes me because I was not the guy that could like hold things together. Really, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I was not the guy with, uh, you know, I was for a little while, I guess, but it, I just couldn't hold it together uh, for very long. So I always, always find that interesting for sure. But I guess on the flip side, that's one of those things. It's like, I sold my first book at 29. Like, I don't have a problem, you know, and we can kind of right. justify it. Right. Yeah. You, you can, you know, weaponize these things and use them. And, and um, it's only in hindsight that I see like, you know, that first book, for instance, there was a little bit of interest in adapting it into a film, but I went to my first meeting in Los Angeles with an agent, you know, without having slept because I stayed up the whole night and I just walked into this office out of my mind. And, mm -hmm. you know, I got through the meeting, I got through everything I was required to do. Okay. I just didn't maximize any of it. You got know, it. that's, that's really clear to me now. Um, mm. And I've made peace with it, I think, or I've made a, a good amount of peace with it, but. Good. Well, I'm sure we'll talk more about that and about how you're optimizing and, and taking advantage these days. So um, I, I do want to ask, like, what do you feel as you, you, you went to an outpatient treatment, you kind of got a little more involved. You, you had like that bridge as you described. Yeah, I really like that. What was the biggest struggle early on in sobriety for you, would you say? Um, part of it was identity. I just had trouble understanding who I was. I had built in this like idea of I'm a mess. Um, I'm, I'm not, I'm not self-righteous. I'm, um, I'm open to anything. I'm rock and roll, like all these constructions that now to me are very flimsy and I had to let go of them, but I didn't know what to replace with them. So there was a whole mythology of like drugs and alcohol is how a real big giant raw life is lived. And I haven't given up the idea that I do still wanna live a big raw giant life that is full of surprises. I was terrified that sobriety would be sort of measured and um polite and like careful and i'd have to go to bed early and i would become a different boring. person boring you know boring yeah. yeah 
boring capital b boring Mm -hmm. um and then there was the real stuff there was losing friends there was falling off of invite lists there was awkward conversations um and all of that was real i mean some of it was me taking apart mythology that wasn't really valid and some of it really was there was some loss because i was changing my life dramatically and my life had been built on substances and communities that were built around substances yeah well and i'm just i'm no writer but i can just imagine and knowing you know thinking about so many well-known writers just kind of like what their lives look like and their relationships with substances i would imagine that if it were me that would be part of the mythology it's like look at all these great right like this is what influences me to be a better writer maybe I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's probably what I would be thinking to some degree. Hunter S. Thompson, you know, you're mm-hmm. like, but Hunter S. Thompson. Right, right. Yeah. Need I you say know? more? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that, you know, his story is, is um, you know, when you really look at it from the beginning to the end, does that myth really hold? I'm not sure. Mm. Um, and that's one of the creativity and, and substance use or abuse connection is something that no longer has any validity to me like I don't think it really introduces an artist to what kind of work they're going to do I think I think we're often really shy and weird and so we drink to make up for it Mm. Um, and that's why so many artists or writers end up being yeah that, that makes where they probably sense. should be sober. You know? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I, and I certainly want to ask you more about that. And I appreciate you just being honest about, I think you described it uh, a lot. Like I probably would have described it, like figuring out who I am, like what was going on early in sobriety, figuring out like who the hell am I? And, but I appreciate the honesty just in saying, like, especially for some people that might be new to sobriety that are listening to this or watching it, like, there was some loss. Like, I think that's just part of the journey. And there probably should be. I mean, to to be honest, there were a lot of people that I, I just shouldn't have been around. And like, we just didn't even click. Like we were just weren't even on the same path in life. How long did it take for you to see that though? Was that evident in the beginning? Like when the loss came, did you, did you know that this is good or did it take a, a few years of like, yeah. so, so there were, there were two things and, and to keep it quick that come to mind. Number one, I had a really great, so I was, uh, you know, I'm in a 12 step program and my first sponsor, I really lucked out with this guy. I mean, he really was there and kind of like guided me and held my hand through all this stuff early on. And I remember that I went to him kind of talking about this exact thing, you know, like, hey, the question was almost, I I said something about someone that I was referring to as a friend. And he kind of came back at me like, hey, is this really a friend? And he gave me this assignment and said, hey, I want you to go around and ask people, what does a friend mean to them? Like, what is a friend? And that started to reshape it. And then The other thing that happened is when I went to treatment right before I got sober, uh, my best friend, still my best friend who I was getting high with, but is not one of us. Like he was one of these people that was just able to kind of turn it around. Um, We didn't talk for a year and I saw him on his birthday almost a year later. We had literally not talked at all. Like he knew I went to treatment, but we hadn't spoken. And what he said to me was, he said, you know, if I knew that we weren't going to talk ever again, but you were going to get better. I was okay with that. I'm like, man, that's a friend. 
Like that's someone that genuinely oh, that cares. Makes, yeah. Yeah. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. So that, so that, I, but to answer your question directly, how long did that take? I mean, yeah, it probably was about a year, definitely not to figure out who I was, you know, that's, a, that, that's still in uh, developing. <laughs> right. uh, I have a better idea, but yeah, for sure. A year, like, you know, just to kind of figure out like, man, these are the people that I should really be around. And these are the people that, that I need to kind of cut off maybe and just stay away from. Yeah. I think what I locate now as courage or bravery in this world and this, in this journey is it takes a lot to be identityless and to not have those answers for a while. It's hard. Like the ego is, you know, yeah. is, is our armor. It's what we go out into the world with. And, mm -hmm. and I see people now who are trying, you know, who go a month in six months in and fall back. And so often I think for us, it's, you feel so vulnerable without that protection of a persona and, and a sense of self. And um, I wish I could tell, tell my younger self, like you're gonna feel exposed and you're gonna feel disoriented. And um, on top of all the other heavy lifting that goes into recovery, this identity part is, is massive to me. And to just realize that it's actually courageous. It's not because you're a fuck up, it's because <laughs> you're trying something that's really hard to do. And and hang on and realize that it, it's um, kind of a noble thing to do, to, to be, I don't know, without a name for a minute. Yeah. yeah, well, and certainly I think to a large degree, like going against the grain of what most people are doing, you know, especially like myself, you know, still in my 20s when I got sober and, you know, it's like you see all of your friends doing certain things and that's where that identity kind of, and the ego you know, mm -hmm. kind of get caught up. And um, yeah, so I get that. I do appreciate what you're saying, though. You know, I think there's a lot of value in the clarity that is provided by groups and recovery or other people that have been through this. And it's essentially just like the, hey, what you just said a minute ago, like there is going to be loss. There is going to be some hard shit that you're going to have to deal with. Um, you know, we're here, but just be aware that like, that is part of this, like, is it is going to be uncomfortable. Uh, because I think a lot of the times, and, and I approach sobriety like this, I thought it was just going to be put down the drugs and alcohol. And then it's gravy. Like, right. we're, we're good. <laughs> we're okay from from here out, you know, right, right. And it's not it's That's a funny. And it is funny because everyone does have to take their own path. Mm -hmm. And yet you can have so many, um, what I finally learned was you can have so many people giving you wisdom along the way from their own particular individual roads, you know? Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. Different viewpoints. So, so important. Now your book is titled The Sober Lush, A Hedonist mm -hmm. Guide to Living a Decadent, Adventurous and Soulful Life Alcohol-Free. Now I'm, I'm loving the descriptors there. And, <laughs> you know, I, I told you before we hopped on that I, I love that title. So much, there's so much power in that. And, and like you said a moment ago, like I didn't want, I didn't even want to think about being sober and boring. Like if, if that was what sobriety was going to be about, just just like super vanilla, you know, I can't enjoy myself or laugh or have any adventures as a title. 
Like, I just really didn't want any part to do with that. And I think that's a big misconception about sobriety as well. So how did you and your co-author on this book, Amanda Ward, how did you guys come up with the title alone? Like, that's really what I'm curious about. I think I had this idea for the title even before this stretch of sobriety. So I've been sober almost eight years now. And, but again, started dabbling with it you know, decades ago. And I think I would have a revelation during each little episode of sobriety where I would recognize like you, you were looking for transcending the ordinary. You were looking for pleasure in drugs and alcohol. You were looking for massive connection. You just mm. got it in sobriety. Like mm. these are the things that you classify as belonging to drugs and alcohol. You just got them times 10 for a moment or an hour over here on this side. And then I would promptly forget all of that um, because I'd want to forget it so that I could go back to this habitual life. To me, it was the cornerstone of sobriety was realizing everything that you just said that we don't need to be boring. That wasn't just a side piece. It kind of was a key part of the foundation to building, to building a new life because you do quit and that's a thing, but mm -hmm. then what? And um, right. What has been underdeveloped, I think, to some extent, is the pleasure side of sobriety as a blueprint and um, the magical side of sobriety. And, and I don't think it takes, again, I don't think it takes the place of the heavy lifting. I also heavily relied on 12-step. And again, I don't think I could have done this without the outpatient and the counselors and um, all of that was hundred percent essential, but then to keep living and to thrive and to grow, I, I wanted to explore what my ideas are around how sobriety and pleasure, how sobriety and experimentation, how sobriety and creativity all connect. And so that sort of fell under this umbrella of hedonism, which can have negative connotations, but yeah. I think we just wanted to play with it as a as giving permission to sober people to imagine sobriety as something other than a discipline, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As no, a that luxury. Makes, yeah. That makes a ton of sense. I, that's just, that's a really awesome, just like a, approach to all of this. I mean, because I think about pleasure, like initially I think in sobriety or, or in terms of addiction, it's like bad pleasure, right. bad, you know? Right. Um, and I, I also think that a lot of the times when we come into this thing, it's like the goal is in our minds, the main goal is sobriety, right. but you know, after a little while of being sober, I was like, no, that's not the main goal. The main goal is to have an awesome life that like I love and there's cool stuff going on and I've got cool people around me and it's, it's more than just like the sobriety, the way I think about it, like the sobriety is, is kind of, I don't want to say the bare minimum, but it's, you know, it's just the beginning. Like that's just the first part of all of it. Which was a total surprise and revelation to me. And so, and I think, I think probably people or um, literature tried to communicate that to me in abstract terms, you know, the living sober terms, but it wasn't, 
it wasn't portrayed so that it excited me. So the book is really kind of poetically, creatively, whimsically written. It's definitely not a, a basic how-to guide. It's, it's um, it, because Amanda and I both are novelists primarily, it's written more like a short story or um, okay. something to kind of give, give you a luscious sense of what we've found as a new landscape to kind okay. of paint a portrait. And, and um, because I don't think I believed it even when I heard it in the abstract, like your life can be bigger, your life mm -hmm. can be transcendent. Um, and I think Quitlet memoirs are brilliant for like being so exact about that author's road to eventual recovery. Like the way that Sarah Heppala in Blackout describes these moments of her um, anxiety and intoxication and all that came with that helped me identify myself and understand what was going on with me. And I really wanted that kind of evocative book for the other side of quitting. You yeah. Know? yeah. Like I love Annie Grace, adore, mm -hmm. I think all these books that I wish were around when I was younger. I love them now. I think they are so useful. And then on top of that, like a little cherry on top, I think our book is more like the glitter or the the magic <laughs> and the, you know what I mean? I, I like that. Well, so I looked, I was just reading some like descriptions and, and one of the ones I was reading was just a description of the book on Amazon. And it says, um, it's being described as a roadmap for living a lush and sensual life without booze so and you just you kind of described the way that it's written as well could you maybe share without giving the whole book away could you maybe share some of the specific things that the book talks about that might help you know someone listening that, that's in recovery obviously live a little more adventurous and fulfilling life absolutely and and they're funny little um anecdotes so it's it's not as clearly laid out as a how-to book. They're little tiny essays that are kind of um, just whimsical. So Amanda and I would kind of each write an yeah, essay like and then sometimes we would add to each other's essays. Okay. So one of them is about roller skating. One of them is about the polar bear plunge on New Year's Day since New Year's was always like a massive, you know, two, three day straight drug and alcohol thing mm -hmm. for me. And I, I still love the idea that you celebrate this new year, but I wanted to do it a new way that still connected me with people. So the polar bear plunge is like. And um, so that's when you dive into like freezing cold water. You right? go with your friends, New Year's Day, you get naked and you jump in. Naked? For no like way. Two seconds, naked? And then you come out with your blankets wow. and you go back to like a fireplace. And, you know, I just identified. Um, with almost all of these chapters and specifically with this one, like what was I getting out of New Year's? Like I mm. wanted something to spike and to feel exciting and to be an intense experience that I felt with friends. Um, and that doesn't need to be blacking out. It could be right. doing this other thing. Yeah. Um, so we go into traveling and like visiting graveyards in New Orleans and skinny dipping and, um, sensory deprivation tanks, the zero gravity float mm -hmm. tanks and lucid dreaming. And um, there's a whole chapter on eating. There's a chapter on playing, like moving your body. And, um, and I'd, read, I'd read good stuff about yoga and meditation. And those things again are cornerstones, 
Um, but I think going into things like roller skating and um, I don't know, just further ideas beyond the self-care packages that we are often relying on heavily in early sobriety, like mm -hmm. extending that into what is, what is play made out of? Like what, what else could fit in that? Like mm. I have a friend who joined, she found a girl's motorcycle club. Oh, wow. So every weekend they take their motorcycles, go camp for a night somewhere together and come back and just opening my mind to, um, to all the things that were always right in front of me, but I couldn't see them. Whenever I was, whenever I was fighting sobriety, I would always say like, there's going to be nothing to do if I stop drinking and doing drugs. Like, and there's a million and one things to do, you know, I, they were, yeah. they were always right there. I agree. I mean, I would, you know, get drunk and high and have all these like high ideas as some people <laughs> call them about all these great things I was going to do these elaborate thing trips, like none of that shit ever happened. <laughs> none of oh it God. ever happened, you know, and, and I really like the idea of this because, you know, something as simple as roller skating, I agree. Like there is a yoga great stuff exercise i mean i'm a fitness and nutrition coach so I'm, sure. you know, I'm i'm all about that stuff but it does kind of i think it boxes people in sometimes not everyone is going to fit into these different things and so having something that just even presents some more ideas i think is is really cool um especially when it's written in a really fun way like i read a bunch of the reviews and and that was kind of the thing that everyone agreed upon. Like they really enjoyed how it was written and it was fun and humorous, but it's great for new ideas to be presented because I think it would be very easy. Um, and I experienced this to a degree, like to come in to recovery and say, yeah, not, not big into any of this. Like maybe recovery or sobriety in general just isn't for me because I don't fit into the yoga box or the, this box or the, and, and then that's, and that's it. So I think this is, I think this is really important. So I love that. Thank you. Um, yeah. We wanted the book also to serve as like something to keep someone company in early sobriety. I was so lonely, you know, especially cause I also didn't reach out. I was really embarrassed and in my first few tries over the years and, mm -hmm. And um, I really, I really do think early sobriety can be difficult. And just to have a little love and have somebody who's by your side, even if it's in book form, like laughing with you about how hard it is or playing with new ideas and um, I don't know, celebrating vulnerability in a, in a way that's, that's joyful and celebratory. I think that, that that was part of our goal in writing it too. Well, and I think that's a great goal too, you know, because for someone like me, like I said, getting started in a 12 step program, uh, you know, I, AA, I had the big book, like, and I, I was never really a bit, I hate, I hate even saying this. I'm a big reader now, but I was never a big reader until I got sober. And so it was like, I had the big book, which like I was getting into and it was important and there's so much good stuff in there. It served me very well. But I almost wish I'd had something else to be like something a little more fun that was 
recovery related to a degree that I could, you know, that might be introducing some different and definitely more like modern ideas, you know, I mean, that like, you <laughs> right. know, when there's a dictionary to go along with right. this, this book written way back in the day, uh, you know, sometimes it's, it's helpful to have something, you know, a little more fun and a little more, more modern there. So I think that's a great idea, like just something to um, kind of accompany someone early in recovery. That's a, that's an awesome idea. Yeah. And it's, and it's written that way too. So it's not really a linear book. It's little tiny chapters that you can kind of dip into. And, and, um, and there's those days when you just lose the sparkle and lose the drive. And it's, you know, it's nice to have a mosaic of tools, whether it be a podcast or mm. a book or a friend to call that just can give you that little thing that gets you through that day. I think. It's, I agree. I agree. Lovely. Now you, you touched on this a moment of a moment ago, just in terms of how your creativity and your sobriety are, are linked together. And I think you even just said that that's part of what the, the book was about was really to kind of dive into this. I'm guessing for others, but probably, you know, you realize some things about yourself in the, in the whole process and writing of this book. So how would you say that those two are, are linked today? I, I mean, I've been so much more productive, you know, like the, the example of having gotten a meeting when I was, you know, having just published my first novel and I got my first meeting with a film agent. I got through the meeting, but nothing happened. The agent didn't represent me. You know, I had a lot of those situations where I kind of treaded water and published a few more books. But since I've become sober, I have invested so deeply, published more than I did in these few years than I did in the rest of my life. Um, have sold TV shows at my first movie made and got to be on set and watch it happen. And, um, and none of these are like bestsellers or huge projects, but to me, it, those are my dreams come true. And there's no way any of them would have come to fruition without being sober. Mm. Um, to me, writing is about being vulnerable and taking chances, which when I have a devastated nervous system from drugs and alcohol constantly, that's just not going to happen very often. I'm going to, I'm going to be safer and more careful and more nervous. Um, and writing is also about momentum. So the fact that I can count on myself every day, not to write well, but to sit down I could not come close to doing that back in the day. You know, I could get two days out of a week maybe, you know? And um, it's not that I was drunk all the time and couldn't write. It's that I was constantly slowing down and interrupting the creative process by, by these devastating nights that would, you know, kill me for another day or two. And especially as I got older, they took such, you know, big night it would just take such a, chunk out of my soul um yeah. and now I think it's just hilarious that I thought that that's what would lead to creativity when mm. I've been more open to meeting more people and a bigger spectrum of people since I've been sober I've traveled more places I've been open to more experiences I thought I was living in an extreme way and seeing crazy things by going out at night and like you do, of course, if you get into certain underworlds, you're going to see and meet certain kinds of experiences and people. And yeah. 
they can be, um, you know, fascinating and intriguing to an extent. And then after a while, I'm like, I think this is the same exact night and the same people mm. over and over and over again, even though they have different faces and it's a different dive bar, but um, it gets very repetitive. So yeah. sobriety has just let me be more of the explorer that I always wanted to be. And that that's the direct link to creativity. It's it was extreme behavior as I thought it had been. Mm, I really like that. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, it makes a ton of sense. And so I want to ask directly, I mean, the book is all about being a hedonist, right? Like someone that's that's seeking pleasure. So how do you do that specifically, if you could share some stuff? I mean, I think you yeah. maybe shared a couple little tidbits there. And and just, yeah, what, what does that look like? I think both Amanda and I, we really bonded. She had just gotten sober when we, we were introduced. We were introduced because we were both novelists who were sober and she had done that thing running into this brick wall of quitting a bunch of times and not being able to see her way through um, because of not being able to lay out a sober identity path that looked good. So we met and we immediately started talking about creativity and sobriety. Um, and we really bonded over the fact that what was going to work for us was dissecting the things we thought we wanted from drugs and alcohol. So pleasure is the big umbrella, but then dissecting pleasure, pleasure to me is writing and completing something. Pleasure is also bonding with people. Um, pleasure definitely is travel. We have a chapter called divine transgressions because hedonism to me also means being delivered from the ordinary. I think that's somewhere in its many definitions, which I love. Like, I don't want to live the same day over and over and I don't want yeah. to be nine to five and I don't want to, I, I want, um, I mean, it was one of the things that I used to be able to do with drugs and alcohol. I could kind of press that button and explode the day and night, you know, mm. they would be fractured and, um, I wouldn't know what would happen next. You know, I'd be on some kind of an adventure and I still want to do that. And so divine transgressions is simply about doing things like staying up all night sober. You know, I was at a writer's residency and there was a painter who was there and he would stay up all night just to paint the sunrise. Wow. And because his mind would be a little bit altered just from having been awake all night walking in the woods. And hmm. um, I love those ideas. I love anything that has to do with um, seeing and experiencing and having a sensory experience of life in a bigger way than the ordinary kind of daily wow. deal. And you can't do that every day. That's true. But just just to keep it as an objective, you know, as a goal is is part of what the book is about. And um, and a lot of the people that I take cues from and learn lessons from now like my friend who's in the motorcycle club she's not sober um, another friend of mine always drives out to the desert for three nights a year and sleeps outside just to like reorient reorient himself to like the night sky and and himself you know he does it alone um, and he's not sober but i i love the idea of collecting ideas for things that fall under the umbrella of pleasure, but have more to do with specific things um, 
like bonding and creativity and, and consciousness experiments and, and all that. Travel was a huge one. I, when I was a drinker would say to people like, there's no point in traveling sober. Wow. You know, I'd say things like that, which I am, I blush now to think about it because it's, you know, not true and not fair. So, so a whole section of the book goes into how do you rethink, how do you rethink travel and roaming mm. and, and what is it made out of and what am I really looking for out of a trip? Wow. I can't yeah. wait to read that. Yeah. Cause I, I love traveling and I even keep just kind of as a reminder and also cause it's funny uh, in my office here, I have a picture of me as a, a younger guy look totally different uh, in Jamaica with a huge uh, I would call it a nug. I would say a stalk of weed. <laughs> You know, and, and now it's like, as you were talking, talking about travel, I literally picture in my mind. Um, so my wife and I have been to Europe a, a couple times, which has just been a, a total gift. And it's been so awesome to experience that in sobriety. And I'm picturing uh, this view from a hotel we stayed in, in Italy, uh, just looking off into uh, over the coast. And it's just like this vast, and it's like, you know, I, because that is how I, I approached travel before. It was like, man, how messed up am I going to get? And how am yeah. I going to do it? And where am I going to find it? And what's the, and that was that. And now it's like, I can actually be present in these incredible moments and I can remember stuff so, so vividly. And yeah. so even though it was an experience that happened, uh, uh, you know, a little while back now, especially with the COVID, not much traveling going on right now. I can actually still kind of go back there almost. So I, I'd be really interested to, um, I've, I've never, I've never like really planned a, a, a trip with that in mind. So I, I'd be interested to hear, you know, some of, some of y'all's thoughts on that for sure. Like just how to, how to get into that mode, you know, in, in sobriety. Yeah, it's funny. The first trip, um, so I got sober around my, I used my 40th birthday to finally, do the outpatient and commit. Um, Cause I knew it was going to be a big turning point where I could either regret everything or I could use it to move on. Mm. And, um, and I, and I use it to move on. So a friend of mine took me on a trip to Marrakesh for my birthday. Wow. That's incredible. That's a city that's really not based around alcohol because of religious ideas. Yeah. And, um, and the culture there is just not about alcohol. So we, hiked a lot we had um a cooking class in an old almond factory where we wow. learned how to make tagines and a fisherman brought fresh fish for us to cook and um we ate elaborately and decadently and we're exhausted by 9 p.m and went to sleep because we got up early and and the whole trip she'd been sober for longer and um the whole trip was just about this gorgeous place. And it just made it seem so much more ridiculous that I ever thought you couldn't travel without drinking. It's more like you can't travel and drink the way I did because you're forfeiting 98% yeah. of what you came to see and do. You oh, know? absolutely. I mean, you mentioned just getting up early. I mean, I would I know. like, I'm thinking back to that trip in Jamaica. Uh, you know, I'm sure I slept half the days, you know, just not even being able to to enjoy that. And, you know, before we hopped on to do this interview, I was thinking about 
you know, what really brings me pleasure. And there's some, there's some little everyday things, kind of like you talked about, like writing something and, and finishing it or, you know, completing tasks is, you know, it's simple, but I mean, it is something, um, you know, cause I didn't do that before I got sober. I didn't complete things. I mean, personally, um, but definitely the travel, I would say like, that's, that's like the biggest thing that has brought me so, and, and, and going on adventures and getting out of my comfort zone, I think is really what it comes down to in a really large part for me. Oh, that rings a bell for me too. And that is a funny parallel to writing because again, I think good writing, good art, good, good career moves are about taking chances and being vulnerable and getting out of your comfort zone. And I think being healthier and having better mental health and like a very calmed and cared for nervous system allows me to do all of it, hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, experimenting with travel, with hospitality, with being a host. You know, I've always been shy, but I've always loved my friends and loved communities of people and eating and sharing food and still want to keep doing that. And um, in so many ways, sobriety has actually allowed me to do exactly that, to move out of my comfort zone. And um, so cool. it seems counterintuitive. I think it's what a lot of people think they're drinking to do. But. Right, right. Absolutely. And, and so I, I just want to ask here, I mean, can you tell us a little bit about what your recovery actually looks like today? I think you've kind of touched on bits and pieces as, as we've been chatting here, but what is, you know, today, especially with, with what's going on, you know, and this whole COVID thing and, um, you know, a lot of people still on lockdown for the, like, what does your recovery look like today? So my partner is sober and that has helped. We've been together for seven years. Um, he has um, recovery that is more fitness-based. He's a rock climber. So he, you know, and he had a more life and death struggle with, with addiction. And um, we talk a lot about what's going on in our minds and, and our lives are, you know, built together around a lot of the things that we write about in the book. Like, you know, we often will walk or in pre-COVID, we would walk to Chinatown. It's like an hour walk and an hour back. And, okay. you know, we yeah. would walk there to have dinner. Like that's our deal is we walk and eat. And um, it's really nice to have a partner to do things like that with. So that's a big piece of my recovery is having a, a partner who's in the same zone. I haven't been going to, I've relied off and on on 12 step. A lot of close friends came from that, but haven't been going to meetings. Um, since COVID really. Yeah. And I think I'm about to move out to the desert. So I think I will go there now. I think I'm aware that moving to a new place kind of quadruples feelings of vulnerability and um, it might be a healthy thing for me to do to lock down with a group there. Um, and I also think it's a beautiful way to build a new life somewhere is to find a program where people have like minded ideas and um and all of that and then I've just met a lot of beautiful people through writing this book through researching this book through my collaboration with Amanda um where we talk frequently about sobriety and also sobriety and creativity and 
Um, and then I think just a huge amount of self-care that I used to think was very indulgent. I don't know why I thought that when I was indulging myself in this other reckless, careless way. Um, I just love walking and I eat better and just treat my body like it's worth something instead of like it's garbage. And like that. Um, like that. yeah, read a lot and podcasts. And again, it's like a mosaic. I think a lot of people these days have this kind of mosaic of tools that are available that are that you can kind of seek out what works for you at which at which point you're at and um and use those i love that that's happened i love that there's a lot of stuff available yeah absolutely absolutely well and and again you know part of the reason i i try to ask that question of our guests as frequently as possible is because Number one, it's it's not going to look the same to everyone, and it probably mm -hmm. shouldn't. Everyone is different, just like you know the like we were talking about the people that might come in and say, uh, "Not yoga, not this, not not to be dissing yoga at all." I like yoga, uh, but you know, they they may not feel like they fit into these certain boxes, and so I think it's great when um, you know you're able to point out like, "Hey, like it's a lot of different things," and this is what what works for me personally, you know, and, and, and it was really great for me to hear that from people early on personally, because I kind of figured out that I could take what worked for me and like leave the rest kind of like what you would hear in meetings, you know, like take what you like and leave the rest or, you know, you know, the saying probably, oh. um, but that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Before we wrap up, I do want to ask if there's maybe one piece of advice that you would like to share with the sober nation? I mean, this is just so often said, but I'll say it again because it was the missing piece for me for years. I didn't know a single sober person, but there were sober people all around me. All I had to do was say to my friends, like, does anybody know anybody? Does anybody have a sibling? Does anybody um, have a book I could read that I could talk to about with somebody that you know. The step to finally talking to another person who's trying to do this was massive for me because I talked furtively with my therapist for years and um, and did a lot of reading and writing in my journal. And it was it was only in talking to another human being and asking for help and just being honest about it. Like I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. I don't even know what I'm asking you for. That somehow was like the gate to, to the other side. And um, I, I just, I, I hope that everyone has to do it in their own time, but there, what I learned is that people wanna help. So if you just say the magic words, like, do you know somebody? It can, it can lead to a lot of beautiful people lining up to give you what you need, even before you know what it is. Wow. That's incredible. And, and so well, I wish I could just get in your brain. You just described things <laughs> so well. It's like, it's written out beautifully. Uh, oh, no, I, I really appreciate that. And, and I would agree, you know, that the, just the, yeah, saying, do you know someone or, or, you know, I'm struggling just voicing it like that's so, so important. And I think takes a lot of the power out of what we're dealing with. And I really like how you said that I didn't know I needed to reach out because I did not know what was going on. Like, yeah, I was doing a lot of drugs and drinking a lot, but mm -hmm. 
but that what that was just part of it and and i needed some people to kind of break this stuff down for me and and i would agree that people are the people that i've met in, in recovery have been willing to go out of their way completely mm -hmm. to help and and i'd like to think that that is just how most people in recovery are I think so. That's what I've found. And I feel like I've heard a lot of people talk about that, that there's just a wealth of generosity and, um, and you just have to ask the one question and get there, you know? Yeah. Well, that's, that's great advice. So be sure to grab your copy of Sober Lush on Amazon or wherever you buy books. Thanks again for coming on the show, Jardine. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure talking with you. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the info from today's episode. Sober Nation FM is brought to you by Sobriety Engine. Sobriety Engine is a free online community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery. Visit sobrietyengine.com to join today. This show is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle while supporting your sobriety, you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at rcvrhealth.com. And again, whether you're listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or watching on YouTube, please share this with your friends, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. Nation, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time.